I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hello. My name is Demetrius, flying solo today. And you're listening to Spaces Podcasts. Thank you for joining us again, everybody. Welcome back. Like I mentioned, I'm uh, on my own today. Jason had to call out to, to take care of a few things, so just going to hold down the fort, just you and I, so hope you don't mind. Today we're going to discuss schools, brought in a, an expert that will share his expertise and, and his experience working on schools and kind of give some insight into what's going on in that focus and, and what the future holds for that that project type. But before we get to him, I wanted to give you an update. Um, you may or may not have seen this. There's a, a show that's been promoted on um, Instagram and a few websites, uh, articles. It's called Casting Call, put together by Gimlet Creative. It's a production company. And Squarespace, the website host, hosting service. The concept behind this this show, it's a podcast that will be sort of in a, a singing competition format where entrants submit their ideas for their pod, their individual podcasts and basically compete to see which podcast will be produced by this company and promoted for, I think, a three-episode series. Um, so, so we submitted, and hopefully uh, the cutoff date was today, May 21st. And they're going to announce the, was it top eight, I believe, uh, the top eight entrants on June 8th. So fingers crossed, hopefully we get this and uh, give us a chance to take our, our show to another another level. And besides that, we're about halfway through the shows that we planned for this year. This has been an amazing experience so far. Uh, never thought that when we started this project, we would be heard in Canada, the UK, Australia, Germany, Sweden, Mexico, Japan, Spain, Ireland, South Africa, just to name a few. This has been beyond my wildest dreams of, you know, how quickly this thing kind of grew. Messages that we received confirming that this was a good idea and that you guys are enjoying the show has been a huge, uh, huge motivator. This has been um, educational for me, and I'm sure I speak for, for Jason and, and Allie. This has been a way for us to get outside of our norm of what we do every day, 
um, and hearing each other's perspectives and guests' perspective has been wildly educational for us. And I hope that you guys gain some knowledge of what goes into the built environment and hopefully a new appreciation for the the environment around you and what uh, you kind of spend your time in every day. We have a laundry list of items that we still want to get to, uh, topics that we want to get to. But if you guys have any ideas or suggestions, um, topics that you want to hear about, definitely send those in to us to hello at spacespodcast.com and we'll, you know, try and shuffle those in and, and hopefully keep you guys entertained and, and, uh, informed about, you know, what you want to hear about. So other than that, uh, we'll, we'll move on and bring in our, our guest. He is an architect and principal at the architecture firm of DLR group. And since joining in 2000, he's become recognized as an expert in forming spaces that enable student-focused learning and takes advantage of new and emerging technologies in the learning process. Passionate about collaborating with educators and students and thinking critically about educational practices, he is adept at identifying what's working at a school, what could be working better, and how spaces and architecture can better support current practices. Thank you, Todd. Welcome in, Todd Ferking from DLR Group. Thank you for joining us, Todd. Thanks for having me, Demetrius. Appreciate that. Sorry for the tongue twister of a bio. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, it was a little tough to get through, but um, glad to have you on the show. Sure thing. So, Todd, you want to expand on your bio um, and sure. DLR? Sure. Yeah, I I've been, like you said, uh, with DLR since about 2000, which is about 80% of my career. Um, much of that has been working in K-12. Like DLR Group is a global firm. We have 20 plus, I think, and growing offices worldwide. Uh, most of those are domestic with about four of those internationally. Uh, we do a lot of different types of projects ranging from civic and justice type facilities, courthouses and jails, as well as workplace environments. As part of my career, I've, I've worked also gotten to work on projects for Google and Amazon and Boeing and companies like that. But probably the most, one of the largest sectors that we do is in the K-12 space. We're actually ranked number one worldwide, probably for the last 10 years running in terms of the amount of schools that we do across the U.S. So yeah, it's a, you know, I've had a chance to work across all of the different sectors that we do at DLR Group, but I keep coming back to K-12 because of its impact it can have on uh, society. So there's a lot of lot of important work to be done. There's a lot of change happening, a lot of innovation in the K-12 space. So it's an exciting area of practice right now. If you want to check out more information on us, you can go to our website, www.dlrgroup.com, and you'll get to see a lot of the different stuff that we do. And um... Social media is a huge thing, so I imagine uh, your website has kind of the links to all the social media and everything. You yes, yeah, so you Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, whatever media. I am not the social media master, I have to confess, <laughs> but uh, I do have a Twitter account. I have a LinkedIn account, so you can follow me on any of those as well as any of my colleagues. Okay, so uh, yeah, as you mentioned, um, how important schools are. The reason I wanted to do this episode. It's a little bit personal to me. Uh, we're going to talk about a project that you guys are working on, which is in my hometown of Compton. It's like Compton High School, although I didn't actually go to Compton High School. Um, I was born and raised in the city, uh, you know, up until, let's see, 17, I think. Um, and then, you know, left to, to go follow my career. But it's it's something that I'm really connected to, and I feel like it's not only important, you know, because of the advances in my community, but in combination with the philosophical growth overall um, in schools, as well as, you know, one thing I want to kind of touch on is sort of the recent tragedy, tragedies in the news. It's a, it's a topic that's really important, and uh, it's something that we need to discuss and explore and kind of share to those that aren't necessarily in the vein of designing schools and, and, and that process. Yeah, this is, I'm really excited about getting into this and learning more from you and, and hopefully sharing a lot with uh, some of our listeners. 
Sounds good. Yeah, I'm hoping to learn more from you as well. You've got the <laughs> yeah. inside track. Yeah. So to know where we're going, you got to understand where we came from and take a little trip back in time. Sixteen ninety five. A historic clapboard frame house in historic Richmond town in Staten Island, New York, known as the Burlesers House, is constructed. Burlesser is a Dutch word that can be translated as one who reads to others. It is now known as the oldest one room schoolhouse in America. In one room schoolhouses, teaching standards and the quality of facilities often vary dependent on local population, economic conditions, and the fact that teachers taught basic academics to several grade levels of elementary age at once, in one room, regardless of their area of main competence. As child labor laws became more commonplace, the Civil War ended and the nation was thrust into the Industrial Revolution. More children were expected to attend schools. School design reflected this period of industrialization, later being labeled as factory-like, dark, and dank. Students were tightly packed in rows to fit as many as possible. As the nation grew and greater attention was focused on establishing infrastructure for a growing society, schools became a new project for societal reformers. Horace Mann, an early educational reformer, developed a model for the standard necessary amenities. Attitudes were changing. Figures such as Maria Montessori in Italy and John Dewey in the United States emerged, supporting the notion of child-centered learning. Alongside them was a generation of architects that designed to house these new programs. The post-war economic expansion of the 1950s brought about a building boom which ultimately encouraged standardized plans and facades to accommodate a student population growth of 2.3 million students just between 1958 and 1968. Some schools adopted new trends in design, introducing modern, one-story, flat-roof structures enclosed in either glass and metal window wall systems or brick and concrete wall systems. The concept of the finger plan also gained popularity. The Crow Island School, designed by Perkins and Will, was an early example. Similar to the Nightingale medical wards discussed in our hospital episode, it consisted of corridors that spread out, off of which each classroom extends, allowing each classroom fresh air, light, and direct access outside. Between 1965 and 1980, declining school enrollment and the fundamental shift to desegregate schools had a major influence on schools. Social unrest and criticism of inequality for minorities, disadvantaged, and low-income youth spurred the development of experimental school buildings. In addition, there was a perception that public schools were stifling creativity. The emergence of environmental psychology further fueled researchers who were starting to recognize the connection between school facilities and student learning. Educational movements like open classrooms and open space schools were focuses of theory and practice of school design in the 1970s. Unfortunately, the energy crisis of 1973 radically changed school priorities to rely on mechanical systems to provide lighting and thermal conditions. Many existing schools reduced windows to save on heating and cooling costs, severely impacting the quality of natural light ventilation, and the sense of indoor-outdoor connectivity. In 1995, a report by the Government Accountability Office estimated that $112 billion was needed just to bring the nation's school facilities up to good overall condition, addressing asbestos removal, basic compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act, and recently discovered problems with lead and water supply. The report told many horror stories like that of raw sewage leaking into a school's front lawn due to broken plumbing and collapsing ceilings due to water damage in another. The nation also became aware of portable classroom issues. Installed throughout the 1980s as temporary structures due to difficulties in enrollment projections, it was increasingly obvious by the 1990s that they were not so temporary after all. These classrooms had significantly higher levels of indoor air pollutants and unacceptably high levels of CO2. Concurrently, the Green Building Movement, fueled by the 1998 launch of the Green Building Rating System known as LEED, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, grew significantly into the early 2000s, 
influencing the future of school design and construction. Today, thought leaders put forth current and on the horizon issues to watch out for, from design concepts and technologies such as privacy niches and distance learning to proposals of evolving the education system entirely. In 2006, Sir Ken Robinson, an educator, author, and creativity expert spoke at TED and proposed an education system that nurtures creativity rather than undermines it. Our education system is predicated on the idea of academic ability. And there's a reason. The whole system was invented around the world. There were no public systems of education really before the 19th century. They all came into being to meet the needs of industrialism. So the hierarchy is rooted on two ideas. Number one, that the, the most useful subjects for work are at the top. So you were probably steered benignly away from things at school when you were a kid, things you liked, on the ground you would never get a job doing that. Is that right? Don't do music, you're not going to be a musician, don't do art, you won't be an artist. Uh, benign advice, now profoundly mistaken. The whole world is engulfed in a revolution. And the second is academic ability, which has really come to dominate our view of intelligence because the universities designed the system in their image. If you think of it, the whole system of public education around the world is a protracted process of university entrance. And the consequence is that many highly talented, brilliant, creative people think they're not. Because the thing they were good at at school wasn't valued or was actually stigmatized. And I think we can't afford to go on that way. What TED celebrates is the gift of the human imagination. We have to be careful now that we use this gift wisely and that we avert some of the scenarios that we've talked about. And the only way we'll do it is by seeing our creative capacities for the richness they are and seeing our children for the hope that they are. And our task is to educate their whole being so they can face this future. By the way, we may not see this future, but they will. And our job is to help them make something of it. Schools have evolved greatly since the one-room schoolhouse. As we continue to look critically at the progress and the current issues we face, it is clear there is still much to do. We can only hope that through design we can alleviate some of the polarizing issues that plague society, improving the learning environments for young people today and into the coming years. Okay, Todd, so uh, so what do you think? You know, I think first off, you've done your homework. Um, I think, you know, ultimately, the first thing I see and from working with a bunch of educators is over the past 300 years, as you went from 1695 to today, a lot of things change, right? Education is fluid. Uh, the way we deliver education is ever changing. And, I, and in a lot of ways, it's really taxing on the educators. You go in and work with some educators and they're just like, okay, this is the, the next best thing. And tomorrow you'll come in with the next best thing. And so there's a bit of resistance to change until mm -hmm. I think educators, a lot of what I try to do is con reconnect educators to their, why they came into education to begin with. I think most educators are optimists and they really want to create better societies and help students achieve at different levels. And sometimes because of all the stuff in their way, whether it's a facility or whether it's policy or new programs or new pedagogical strategies, they kind of lose sight of that. And so a lot of what I do to initially get when you start thinking about, okay, what is a school and where do you want to go with it? And what is education 20 years from now, you know, invariably changes a part of that conversation. And so I think when people really start to reconnect to why education is important, why kids get engaged in what they're learning about, I think then we can really start a conversation about how facilities begin to support that. You know, I think a lot of the, the new movements, at least in the span of my career, you know, we've seen, we're really railing against the cells and bells strategy you know it's basically they say cells and bells but it's basically classrooms lined up in equal size boxes around a double loaded corridor you know oh, i think yeah. we're seeing environments that are much more collaborative much more engaging much more allowing kids to work with their hands uh, you know you bring up sir ken you know he's a lot about recognizing each student's individual genius in yeah. a lot of ways uh, yeah. another part of that I think that you played was, you know, where 
he highlights the the girl has is just won't stop moving as mother her mother takes her to the doctor and she just won't stop fidgeting and then he realizes that you know maybe she doesn't have ADHD or other psychological problems but maybe she's a dancer and she needs to be enrolled in a dance class and so how do we create an educational system that recognizes and supports that individual genius and that's something I try to work on kind of constantly is you know this idea of personalization technology is finally catching up where I think we can create individualized instructional programs you know almost like a used to be just for kids with special needs yeah. uh, would have yeah. these individualized education plans but I think we're going to start to see that every student now starts to have an IEP um, and so that they can sort of pursue their own trajectory and not be navigated off of what uh, the accepted routes are. Yeah, interesting. I'll I'll post that full clip of uh, or full video of uh, Sir Ken Robinson speaking uh, at TED on our website. And I also wanted to jump back to to something you said um, about that pushback that you're getting or that that um, that exists. Is it more of a political or or policy thing that that kind of pushes back on on I, on adopting uh, new new thoughts of design? I think so. I think it's just they're inundated with new ways and new metrics almost yearly, right? So you get it's like no the, child left behind. There's like the, different uh, metrics and there's different ways of sort of measuring student success and you just get exhausted with it, right? And so I think we have to empower teachers and take some of that stuff away. You know, the whole arguing about standardized tests, are they a measure of, of true student success? When they leave college, will the SAT be the best metric to say that they're gonna succeed? And I think a lot of people will tell you no, that there's a lot more variables in that the SAT will reveal. And I think teachers are in that same predicament too, right? It's like, we need to empower them. I've asked teachers in the past, is education or teaching a creative profession just like mine. And I was in one and I just was dismayed when they all said no. Hmm. I think education and teaching has to be one of the most creative professions. Every every kid is different. How do you teach them an algorithm or a, a derivative in an interesting way where they get it? You know, I had terrible calculus teachers in, in high school. And until I got to college, I didn't realize that you know, it actually had a physical manifestation. And so I just think we need to be a lot more sophisticated and empower teachers to do a lot more creative things with the way they educate. Yeah. It almost sounds like it's that exhaustion you said of, uh, you know, things are changing every year. It's like yeah. the uh, the iPhone or, or, you know, the smartphone. Every year totally. there's an update. It's yeah, like, it's I, just I getting worse keep... from the technology side. That's like through the roof in terms of change yeah, yeah you got to learn all that new technology too yeah it's like you can't keep up right yeah totally i assume dlr has kind of a general philosophy for school design do you also have one and and kind of what what are those um philosophies i don't know that it it's an interesting question. You know, I don't know that I would say that we have a stylistic or a programmatic, like how how we design schools. I think what we are striving to do is create the best learning places possible. And there's no single answer to that in my my view. I think cultures are different, communities are different, students are different. So I really just want to make learning environments that amplify the culture and really allow that to thrive. And if that is, I don't know if I would say that Cells and Bells is ever really going to be come back into favor and will support culture because I think so much of schools is about building relationships and fostering collaboration and doing all those types of things. But, you know, because the individualized classroom was great, but it put teachers in a silo. They would go through their entire day without really talking to another educator. Yeah. And so yeah. the more we can kind of create spaces where they can come together, that's the best. So it's an interesting question. I don't I don't know that I would say that we have a style or a philosophy other than the fact that we want to propel learning forward and then, you know, we're using we're actually doing we've launched in the last couple of years a research initiative to go back and 
do primary research into our own environment. So we want to make sure that what we are, what we say we're doing is actually doing what it's supposed to do. And so we're going back into our environments and studying whether they in fact have a difference and have met the design intention. So that's another layer of we're trying to be accountable of what we're saying we're doing. Yeah. So the, uh, the post-occupancy survey type deal. It's, kind of that, but we've actually created a full survey instrument that we're surveying students. Right now, the first form of this is in high schools, but we're looking at basically between educators and students, do they feel, what are their perceptions about the effect of the built environment on their levels of engagement? So it's not so much your traditional post-occupancy evaluation where you kind of go in and ask them, are you happy with the building, that kind of stuff. This is actually a broad spectrum uh, research study that we're looking at right now. I think we have about a thousand participants and that was hopefully will grow and trying to find or draw connections between the user's uh, perception of the environment and their levels of engagement. And then what's interesting is we're starting to contrast what the teachers think is important and what the students think is important. And so far in our first betas, we're finding that a lot of times they are not aligned, hmm. but they're actually the opposite of each other. Wow. You had mentioned also the uh, keeping teachers off of a silo and and um, mm-hmm. and sort of creating this collaborative environment. Are you mm-hmm. referring to uh, teachers collaborating with teachers uh, mm-hmm. or or students as well, or or how does that? What is the the level of crossover that you're looking for? It's all of the above, mm-hmm. um, but I think. You know, if I can get two teachers to work together in a collaborative way to deliver, because I think at the at the core of of what we're doing is teachers are really important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want teacher to teacher, student to student, teacher to student, student to community member. The more layers we can bring to that, that level of collaboration is is important. Yeah. You know, and I think we've looked at the size of that collaboration, you know, it could be educators collaborating across content. So all math teachers are working out, you know, working as a team to say, okay, what do, how are we going to deliver, you know, this instruction on derivatives, you know, and then, you know, what they'll, that team begins to do is take accountability for a larger swath of students. So they may say, Oh, Johnny over there is having problems with his derivatives, less, you know, let's regroup and align in, a, in an appropriate way to make that happen. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. you get, you know, it's just like in my profession, if I had to do this all by myself, it would be a total drag, right? <laughs> yeah. I think most of the innovative stuff comes from dialogue, comes from working side by side with not only other architects, but engineers, educators, you know, it's that diversity, I think that really breeds some interesting stuff. And I just want to create that same kind of opportunity for teachers. Yeah. So the thing that I find intriguing uh, kind of about that crossover, uh, when you look back to the the one room schoolhouse where Mm -hmm. they had, um, you know, multiple different grade levels uh, all together in one room, how that can work. Uh, Like when I was in school, we did a little bit of study of that system of where, you know, there was crossover between different grades um, and how that could promote uh, development for the younger individuals and then Mm -hmm. uh, backwards uh, empathy for the older individuals to take care Mm -hmm. of the people behind them, which I thought was really interesting. But when you look at the schoolhouse concept, it kind of seems difficult for the teacher to to try and keep everybody in one room and and teach them all, you know, at the same time. Yeah, I think, you know, if if we could recreate that model, I think that would be pretty awesome. You know, I think we've fallen in love with content, mm-hmm. you know, that we have a high level of expectation for the amount of content that students can receive, you know, in a comprehensive high school. Now you can take J- Japanese, French, Chinese, whatever, like, you know, multiple languages and have as many electives as possible. You know, I think a lot of the other movements were trying to say, well, maybe that's not as important. Maybe choice all of the curricular choice is less important than building those relationships like the one room schoolhouse Mm -hmm. and so like the small learning communities model was not quite what you're talking about but you know it basically said instead of a 3,000 student high school what if we had 400 student high schools could a team of 16 
educators or so know the names of 400 kids because what's yeah. happening in our society is you know 3,000 kids are falling through the cracks they don't even know who these kids are like a case of that is like we had a high school here in Washington State Marysville Getchell High School where they had 50 percent of the kids dropping out they had the largest high school in the state of Washington Jeez. and then they shifted to they needed to do something so they shifted to this small learning communities model which we were part, we partnered with the school district to kind of figure this out as we went along. So we were designing curriculum while we were designing the school and they were informing each other, right? So like I had educators coming in, not knowing what they were going to be teaching and I was designing space to support that. And so we were kind of using the space to figure out their curriculum and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But anyway, at the end of the day, we went from, or the school district went from 50% of the kids graduating to 89% of the kids graduating. Wow. Uh, that was about two years after the change. And the former superintendent would tell you that that was 50% instruction, 50% construction. Hmm. And so it was kind of those two had to work together in order to get them there. And so that's, it's kind of driven a lot of the way I approach things is we don't just design schools, we design the entire system in a lot of ways. And so I'm constantly in talking about the pedagogical strategies. How are you teaching? Can we do X, Y, and Z? And then how does that then translate into the built environment? Yeah. One of the interesting things that I saw uh, talking about the one-room schoolhouse, uh, I saw some some recent articles that there's actually a push to get back to the, the, one, uh, the one-room schoolhouse. Have you heard any of that talk? And has that influenced any of your design or have you guys done a design it's been kind of that direction i haven't i'd be curious to see what you're looking at you know i think there is uh some movements to adjust the age cohort instead of like a k5 elementary school k8s k12s are becoming more popular so the the grade level groupings are smaller hmm. um instead of like 800 12th graders, you only have 40, right? And so those move through the system. So it's all relationship-based. So that makes sense to me, but I, I haven't seen or heard of where they've actually brought the one-room schoolhouse back. Yeah, I'm not quite sure that any have. I mean, there are a few that still exist today. Uh, yeah, kind of in, the, in small rural communities, probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I don't know that there are any brand new ones done. I just know that there's, uh, I just heard that there's talk of um why don't we bring it back i think i would support that i'd be i'd be interested to look at that a little bit more for sure so you you also kind of mentioned a, a few of your thoughts of societal changes are, are there or can you reiterate some of the the major societal changes that you've seen that have affected school design yeah i think technology clearly is changing the way we deliver instruction, the expectations of, of everyone from families, communities, uh, students, teachers, all of that is, you know, kind of turned things on its head. I think high mobility in, is going to be something that's going to change schools even more, you know, as, as people's jobs and as we're moving from place to place, I think. Um, so uh, mobility in regards to. Uh, like families, I think, are going to become more mobile right? Like yeah, people yeah. are working virtually, they're moving from one place to another with, you know, self-driving cars is another thing that people are talking about quite a bit in terms of its effect on schools and, and cities as a whole. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. there was a, a couple things out there that talked about, you know, will self-driving cars re-suburbanize America? Hmm. You know, because you can now get in your car and go 40 minutes with, and work on something and the car will get you there we'll be looking at, you know, because a lot of the push was the reurbanization coming yeah. back into cities. Downtown LA is a case of that, you know, downtown Seattle, same kind of thing. People are wanting to be in the urban environment and then we need schools to support that. So those are kind of things that are, are happening. I think a big push towards skills-based applied learning is another thing that we're seeing a lot of. You know, I think part of that is due to rising costs of higher education. I was just talking to my friend in New York and her daughter's going to Ithaca College for theatrical lighting design and it's going to be $68,000 a year mm -hmm. 
for a four-year degree. And so what's starting to happen is that we're starting to see different types of programs offered in the K-12 realm that are filling some of those needs that may be higher education or, you know, so there's legitimate pathways outside of college possibly. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's not necessarily a new thing, but I think they're more robust. They're not just for the kids not going to college, but Woodshop is actually a design class and something that you're using engineering, mathematics, all these other things. You're not necessarily learning how to be a carpenter, but you're learning how to use these tools to think. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the next ball to drop. Today, we're talking a little more specifically about kind of K through 12. Uh, but I think college is going to shift completely oh, yeah. uh, in the near future with, you know, people coming off of the uh, this huge wave of school debt and uh, not necessarily being able to get a job. I know we're going to do an episode specifically about kind of career planning and, you know, taking a closer look at what your career income could be in relation yep. to the debt that you're going to incur. <laughs> it's and, a big deal. Yeah, yeah. You know, as architects, we don't get paid very well yeah, coming out of school. Yeah. Uh, so depending on what school you go to, it does it make sense to incur that debt? Um, another thing uh, that you kind of mentioned sort of um, the introduction of technology is shifting people's interest I was just at a a family reunion where the younger millennials into the, what are they called? Z now, I guess, uh, the following generation, you know, having a conversation about like how important is college and can you create your own brand and basically become your own business and doing the YouTube thing. And I think there was a, a, a poll where, you know, it was like some crazy percentage, like 70%, I can't remember. Uh, of students nowadays wanted to be a YouTube star as opposed yeah. to, you know, traditional. It's a legit career now. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, so it's, it's interesting. It's going to completely um, change the way we look at, at everything. And it's a funny thing because my wife and I have this conversation and she hates uh, the fact that uh, kids go that direction or, or want to go that direction of, of the YouTube star. It's like, it doesn't make sense. Why would you want to do that? <laughs> uh, so it's, it's pretty funny, but it's, it's a reality that's, that's happening out there. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. Yeah. There was just a recent thing about artificial intelligence and, you know, will it basically end jobs in America? You know, this is way out there. Yeah. But, you know, they were talking about, does every American then get a stipend from the government because automated or artificial intelligence is producing this content and so let's imagine that that did happen what's the point of schools right so what are we teaching kids at that at that point yeah but yeah you're right i think i don't know any i guess i always wish that when i went to school all these opportunities were open like i had no idea what some of these things you know obviously youtube star didn't exist when i was in high school but (laughs) yeah you know but animator film director any of these kinds of things weren't really you know it was doctor lawyer architect yeah you know Go figure. I ended up being an architect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch over the next, you know, 20 to 50 years of how this kind of translate and how, how we evolve as designers to accommodate these shifts. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's kind of focus in now on, uh, on, on Compton high. You guys were awarded that project. There was a, a competition, right? Um, yep. Yeah. It was an invited competition. And uh, amongst how many architects do you know? There were four. I'm not sure how many got into the main pool, but there were there were four of us initially that were to do uh, the full design and compete. Oh, okay. but I think one of them actually dropped out. So there was ultimately three that the board chose from. Oh, okay. So can you give us a kind of a summary of of the project and you know notable design elements uh, concept? Sure. Yeah. So a big part of what we were trying to do is bring world-class education to Compton. You know, a lot of our team, we have a Los Angeles office, but we brought in experts from all over the country. Myself, Jason Lemke out of Chicago, Jim French out of Kansas City to really kind of look at, all right, what could we do to bring 21st century learning to Compton? Uh, Just going through Compton High, it was definitely not that. You know, you have that historic building that really, you know, is not connected to the outside. You know, it's it was just not a really pleasant place.
place to be. Um, so anyway. And, and uh, one thing, let me go, interrupt you here quick. Yeah, really go quick. for it. Uh, one thing that I wanted to mention that I forgot. One of the things that kind of instigated this whole process is uh, Dr. Dre had yeah. come back and basically made a $10 million donation. Yeah. Yeah, um, to right. the to the school board, which initiated this whole kicked off this thing and made it possible. Yep. Sorry. So yes. No, that's exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. You know, not that we plan that, but that's the kind of thing that we hope will happen and continue to happen. You know, I think Compton has a really robust legacy. You know, coming from the outside, a lot of what I knew of Compton before we started this design competition was the notoriety of the community. Right, this urban tough community. But you know. Getting into this, we really were trying to and seeing how Compton's kind of a place in change. It's evolving. There's a lot of optimism and hope in Compton that I see, you know, with Compton High School being right next to the Civic Square. Could we use the school as a way to not only improve the lives of students, but have a positive effect on the community as a whole mm -hmm. and create spaces that, you know, celebrate the legacy? You know, there's a huge athletic and artistic history to Compton. You know, how can the school begin to kind of reflect that and celebrate that? So a lot of the design was really based on kind of this strong diagonal that bisected the existing site and anchoring it on one side with a, you know, a world-class fitness facility. And on the other side is the performing arts, which is a big part of what Dre is, I think, contributing to. Mm -hmm. um, and then in between those two is, you know, on the ground level are a lot of the sort of applied learning environments I was talking about before where kids are active and engaged in what they're doing, whether that's in construction labs or health clinics or design labs, uh, videography, all kinds of different stuff that there's basically a public space that binds the two. And our hope is that the activities from inside will begin to spill outside. So as you walk through this plaza on the ground level, you'll be able to experience and, and engage in that type of learning that's happening there. Mm -hmm. And then we wanted to make a gesture to, you know, something that's iconic. So above that plinth is what we call it. You know, there are two basically learning suites, uh, two stories. So it's a three story school, but those are the kind of the core learning environments that are really flexible. We came up with some ideas for new classrooms design that we call keystones that are basically five sided, allowing the classrooms to connect with the various different spaces adjacent to it in unique ways, allowing them to kind of reconfigure space fluidly, whether it's, you know, hour to hour, they open a wall and they're working as a team together and then they close it working independently, you know, so they can expand and contract and adjust the space accordingly. So I think that's ultimately kind of where we were trying to get to and something that really was a, a beacon to the world that says, hey, Compton as a, is at the center of the dialogue about where 21st century learning is going. And I think I think we're going to get there. Yeah. You talked about that openness and kind of connection and, and spilling out mm -hmm. sort of in contradiction of that. Mm -hmm. Were there thoughts of of security and, mm -hmm. and how how to mitigate that? For example, I didn't go to, to Compton High or um, or there's another school there, uh, Centennial. I ended up going to um, King Drew, which is kind of it's it's L.A. It's border between um uh, on the border between Watts and Compton. Mm -hmm. And that school design, I don't know if you are familiar with it, but it's uh, it's almost like a, a courtyard design where the, the school basically wraps around and is almost like a, a bunker. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, so in the middle is a, uh, is a, a massive courtyard where, where everybody hung out um, during lunch and, and uh, during your breaks but there was no connection to to the community necessarily so once you got into school you were you were in there was there any thought of that sort you know it's it's a fine balance right the community connection is controllable in the in the current design you know we are using what you described i don't know it specifically but using the building as basically the perimeter wall mm -hmm. and protecting that courtyard so that is your fence if you will Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we're doing similar things here, but we're using part of it is defined by the building edge. And then part of it is through different fencing, subtle fencing, right? Things that there's layers of environmentally designed 
features that kind of send messages that, hey, this is public or private space. Okay. And then there are literally gates that can be closed and allow that to be completely secured. So you can basically create that secure interior if you want. You can have it open. You know, I think we were seeing it functioning in different ways. So during school hours, maybe it's fully secured. Mm-hmm. But after hours, maybe it's partially open. So it becomes a, a way for the community to come in, use the facility after hours, that there is this gesture that you're not just creating this wall that turns its back on the community. So it's, it is this fine line. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the reality of, of school violence is a lot of times the violence is perpetuated by students known to the school. Mm-hmm. So either by a student in it. So a lot of times people think about school violence as somebody coming in with an AK-47 that doesn't. And that happens. People from the outside come in and just want to wreak havoc. But probably 80 percent to 90 percent of the time, the school violence is perpetuated by students or adults associated with that school. Yeah. And so yeah. a lot of it is through passive strategies, you know, this idea of fostering relationships, not letting students fall through the cracks, making sure that every student is known, you know, so that we can proactively begin to address some of those things. We obviously have to be prepared to deal with something when it does happen, but I think some of those more proactive approaches are going to get us there faster. Uh, than sort of fortification and making the entire school bulletproof because I think that sends an entirely different message. Yeah, uh, yeah. At the school that I was describing, we all had this common um, feeling that we were in a prison, yeah. um, just kind of you know watched from all angles and and just trapped. So I, I get that it's a tough subject, and I don't know. It, it, I feel like through design we can mitigate some of that like you've said but there's this frustration of you know this this polarizing topic in in our society right now and and why can't we do something um so so i get really frustrated with this um because you know i was on that extreme of uh of that fortification which mm-hmm. is not fun but um trying to find that balance it's it's really really frustrating yeah no i yeah i totally agree. Like one of the things that we found in our research is that one of the most significant factors affecting student engagement is feeling safe. Mm. Right. And so what does that mean? That's what we have to translate, you know, and as you were kind of, you know, if you feel like you're under the microscope all the time, like the natural reaction is to rebel against that. So it almost creates the inverse reaction that you want. You know, you're trying to keep kids so safe and you hold them so tight and you can't let them go versus being a little bit more over there's risk there as well so yeah it's a it's a really complicated interesting conversation that we're con and every community's approach to it's slightly different i do think turning schools back into prisons mm-hmm. is not the answer yeah uh, it just it yeah it sends the wrong message yeah definitely so let's touch on a few kind of technical things just really quick snapshots in general What's the permit process like? How difficult is that, you know, for a school? Because I, I come from a majority housing uh, background. Mm-hmm. I imagine the school or the permit process for schools are somewhat of a nightmare. Yeah, it can be. It can be. You know, California uses the Department of the State Architect. So it's a statewide permitting process. The other thing that this Compton High will have to deal with is CEQA, which is basically an assessment of the historic nature of that, the existing Compton High School building. Hmm. And so I think that's probably going to be the more challenging permitting process is to navigate through that without significant delays to the project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, most of our K-12 projects in actually all of our K-12 projects in California have to go through the Department of the State Architect. Okay. And then what about sort of funding hurdles um, in general? Yeah, I, I guess my answer to that would be it's escalation. Just the costs of construction year to year are going up like crazy. Hmm. You know, we're seeing the cost of high schools in California ranging between 600 and $1,000 a square foot. Uh, yeah, so it's it's kind of out of control. And so what's happening is when communities are planning their bonds and pass their bonds and, 
you know, they have an estimation of what they think things will cost. Three years later, things are 30% more. Oh my God. There's the gap, right? And so that's why donations from Dr. Dre are so important to making sure that we can deliver what we said we can deliver at Compton. So yeah, that's the the biggest hurdle, right? Is, you know, we're trying to beat the clock, you know? And so as these permitting processes slow it down, you know, funding dilemmas, any other kind of stuff that really slow the process down, you know, in California, there were a ton of bonds passed in 2016, which means there's a lot of other schools coming into the market and need contractors. So the selection of those contractors is more limited which then again is just driving everything up from a cost standpoint. So that's, that's our biggest hurdle is how do we deliver the same school in this type of climate, you know, in Kansas, it's, I would say your average cost for per square foot for a high school is $200 a foot. So you guys, California is like five times as expensive. Wow. That's crazy. It Uh, is crazy. uh, Do you think it's kind of our, Hmm. I'm trying to think of the the right way to phrase this so it doesn't sound bad, but do you think, because those bonds are guaranteed amounts and, and the money's there, do you think uh, the construction side takes advantage of that? Or is it just a matter of, you know, just the, the nature of uh, of the environment that we're in right now that's driving that cost? I think it's, I think it's demand. Okay. more than the ethics of the contractors taking advantage of that. Like we're seeing it here. We're seeing it all over the country, you know, in Seattle, I think we are seeing escalation in the 30% annually. So you get these big swings in the cost of construction. Uh, and it's just because everybody's busy. They're not as aggressive. They're not going after it as much as they should. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. It could be part of that too. I honestly don't know the answer to that specifically. Yeah. But yeah. I, I think part of me thinks that it's, it's not an ethics issue on their side. Yeah. I know part of it is also just the, the lack of labor force that exists right now, yep. Um, yep. which is driving some costs. Uh, I know f- from the projects that I work on, people are walking off of job sites to sites that pay more. Um, yeah. on, on the subco- subcontractor part of it. So I imagine some of that bleeds over to schools, even though those contracts are you know guaranteed, um, they still have to contend with that, I would guess. Yep. Are there any techniques design-wise or construction that, that you've seen kind of work well or not work well? You know, simple, simple, simple is always best. Um, The more, you know, delivering high quality product without overcomplicating the design, I think is a really important piece of this. So kind of comes back to that first pencil on paper. The selection of materials, the construction type, being really conscious of that, you know, like on Compton, we're, it's a fairly tight site, but we're going up three stories. So that drives us into a very specific construction type. You know, we're in a, a type two construction, which put, is steel and concrete mostly, mm-hmm. you know, so I think looking at the types of trades and the construction typology is important, but, you know, as urban environments, land is, is precious. So we're already in those sort of uh, modes. We're not seeing it executed as much, but there's a lot of discussion about modularizing, not just, mm-hmm. you know, modular buildings, but modular uh, factory built components that could get assembled, facade panels, uh, window assemblies, things like that, that can simplify and speed up the site erection process. But a lot of the work can be done in a factory. We've had some challenges with that, like we've been exploring that here in Seattle haven't had a chance to really execute that, but I think that's coming. You know, the more we can simplify, yeah. I think is the best. So uh, so one last question to kind of wrap up. Uh, look into the future. We, we had a little uh, bit of this conversation early on, but um, what does the future look like? Um, what do you foresee as kind of the big trends or things to look out for? What's going to really change what schools are? Mm, that's the $20 million question right there. <laughs> We're in an age of disruption, right? And so I think what's going to, schools need to be 
much more agile than they ever have been in the past, right? Jobs are changing, technology's changing, cities are changing, environmental issues are changing. Before, schools were this slow moving, slow and steady. And now I think they're going to need to be able to change course a lot more quickly. And so how can you, especially in larger systems, make that change or be prepared to make that change and not be behind the curve? You know, I think we're already there. You know, things are moving much faster and schools are just trying to catch up. And I think it's just going to get more and more. So the more we can really focus on creating flexible and agile learning ecosystems, essentially, where the policies and the procedures and the buildings allow for change to occur, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, I guess that's my two cents is that, you know, I don't know. I look into, I try to look into the crystal ball all the time yeah. <laughs> and we just don't know. And that's, I think the answer is we don't know. And so how can we prepare for the unknown and be willing to change directions when we need to change directions? Yeah. Thank you again, Todd, for joining me today. Uh, yeah. Really appreciate you getting on this topic and kind of educating us and, and sharing some thoughts on this uh project type. Appreciate it, Demetrius. It was fun talking to you. Likewise. So again, that was Todd Ferking with DLR Group. Check out more information um, and projects from DLR at dlrgroup.com. And if you have any questions, comments for this episode, feel free to, to contact us on social media, Spaces Podcasts, or you can email us at hello at spacespodcast.com. We don't have any listener mail this week, but we're going to start to try and give you guys a heads up on what's coming up for the next episode. So next time on Spaces Podcasts. There's somebody just like you who's sitting in a prison cell and they didn't do much more than you did, you know, some crazy weekend. You didn't get caught. They got caught and they can never get uncaught. Mental brutality was the rule here. And that's what it was meant to do is to break you mentally. The prison itself and the way it was run with punishment in mind made guys psychotic. So you lose the ability to sit down and reason things out. You had to do whatever you have to do to survive. If that means you and I have a beef, then I'm out to hurt you as bad as I can hurt you so I don't have to do it again. And as always, thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate or like it. And forward a link to your friends. Uh, Your support is the only way that this show grows. And if you just stumbled upon this show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Also check out spacespodcast.com. We'll have tons of photos, notes, uh, links to articles that we used and discussed today. And with all that said, if you're catching up, hit next. Or if you're listening as we put these out, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders. Get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry. With Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, 
you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK, the three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.